The following series contains descriptions of violence that may be unsuitable for some listeners. Please use discretion. In early 1883, in Dublin, Ireland, what would be one of the highest profile series of trials in Irish history began. They were referred to as unparalleled in their gravity and in the number of those arraigned, attracting attention like none seen in the country before. The prisoners would be brought from their heavily guarded confines at Kilmainham Jail to the Green Street Courthouse under a mounted military and police escort. Along the route by which the accused will be conveyed, groups of marines will be stationed at short intervals. The approaches to Green Street and Holston Street, leading to the front and back entrances of the courthouse, will be guarded by cordons of police, who shall be instructed to allow no person to pass but those showing tickets of admission or summonses as jurors, and the professional engaged for the accused. Interest in the trial was international. A huge turnout of reporters from around the world was expected. A lottery was put in place, with only 60 reporters permitted entry. These, along with sketch artists, would be facilitated with reserved seats and specially assigned sections of the courtroom. At Kilmainham Jail, numerous measures were put in place to facilitate the movement of the prisoners. Iron bars were erected around part of the jail to prevent the public from coming too near the prison entrance. To the right of the courthouse, a small gate, now commonly named after the group, was used to transfer them to and from the jail without risking taking them outside. These extensive precautions were not just to protect the accused from the large crowds that swelled outside. On the contrary, the police feared a rescue attempt might take place. The prisoners were far from under threat with the general public. They were somewhat popular. It's said that when the transport containing them went past, there were cheers from those who lined the streets. When the police and their cars followed, there were boos and hisses. As it is crucial to understand the events of this series within the context of the time, here are a few milestone events which should help anchor listeners to the period. Around the same time, in Ireland, in the 1880s, James Joyce would be born. W.B. Yeats would be finishing secondary school. Mark Twain would publish Huckleberry Finn in 1884. In America, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty would be completed. In Europe and Asia, the Eiffel Tower and the Orient Express. In 1882, only 30 years had passed since the end of the Great Irish Famine, and only 32 more would elapse before the beginning of World War I. Jack the Ripper was only a few years away from beginning his reign of terror in London. Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture debuts in Moscow the same year that Christmas tree lights were created by Thomas Edison and Jesse James would be shot by Robert Ford. Far from overtures and seasonal lighting, Ireland was in the midst of a social and political upheaval. This period in the late 19th century was to be referred to as the Land War, in which poor, rural-based tenants sought fairer rents and ownership of land from a much-despised landlord class. Often, some of these landlords were referred to as absentee landlords, not even present in the country, instead delegating the running of their estates to land agents. These land agents themselves then became the target for violent agitation, instigated by disgruntled tenants who were threatened with eviction. Evictions themselves were often accompanied by riots, increasing in numbers and escalating in violence. 
A report has just reached the city that a landlord who had some serious troubles with his tenants has been attacked upon his way home on Saturday. The victim who was serving on the recorder's jury in Cork during the last week left yesterday morning by train. On his way home, he was recognized and attacked by a party of men and beaten. The violence would beget more violence. Whilst endeavors were made by some to solve the escalating crisis politically, others chose weapons over words. This is the story of one such group, their formation, their failures and bloody success, and the detective in charge of hunting them down. This is The Invincibles, Park Assassins. While the countryside was the main arena for violence, Dublin was far from unaffected. Repercussions from the Great Famine, with another one threatening following an increase in crop failures, strike Dublin. Throughout most episodes in this series, we'll hear from three historians on relevant subjects. Michal O'Dwivlin. Dublin was always separate from the rest of the country. Even during the Great Famine, it was separate. But it was never inured from what was going on in the country. When you think say in the famine, you had a country that was decimated. The potato crop fails, everybody lives on potatoes, so they're starving. So what happens? You move off the land, if you can make it, and you come to Dublin. But population of Dublin doubles. Now what happens? Food prices go out the window. Rented accommodation goes out the window. All these costs went up. So the effect on Dublin was not a shortage of food, but a shortage of money because of all of this poverty. And be, the, the difference between the, t- the, the two layers in society, it was obviously a dangerous place, people being robbed, people being murdered. Into this fray emerged a man who was to become one of the most celebrated politicians in modern Irish history, Charles Stuart Parnell. Protestant and from a wealthy landowning family, Parnell with his skill and charisma had risen to the leadership of the Irish Parliamentary Party in the House of Commons. He became the president of the Land League, the most powerful political organisation that Ireland had known for half a century. The goal of the Land League was to assist the tenant farmer, stop evictions, reduce rents, and ultimately establish peasant proprietorship. It was also heavily involved in agitation. Felix Larkin. The Land League was an organisation of agitation. In some instances, uh, violent, but not with an ideology of uh, violence the way that the Republican movement would have had at the time, such as it was. League leaders would rile and provoke their audiences with inflammatory language as they toured the country. They highlighted the people's right to possess weapons, called upon them to arm themselves, and cited that anyone who pays an unjust rent is an enemy. Historian and writer Barry O'Brien wrote vividly on the matter. Tenants who paid unjust rents or took farms from which others had been evicted, were dragged out of their beds, assaulted, sometimes forced to their knees while shots were fired over their heads to make them promise submission to the popular desires in future. Bands of peasants scoured the country, firing into the houses of obnoxious individuals. Graves were dug before the doors of evicting landlords. Murder was committed. A reign of terror had, in truth, commenced. Parnell's sister Fanny, fanatical in her own right, also took to urging her countrymen on, writing in verse, The birds of prey are hovering round, the vultures wheel and swoop, 
They comment, the coronated ghouls, with drumbeat and with troop. They come to fatten on your flesh, your children's and your wives. You die but once, hold fast your lands, and if you can, your lives. Politics and agitation went hand in hand, all towards the same goal, though through hugely different means. The Landig agitation was obviously, you know, a reflection of the political impotence of the movement, uh, and it was uh, designed to give them some leverage, and it did. Militancy always needs a political wing. You have to have someone to do the talking for you. It's the old thing, you know, you cause terror and then you, d- then you talk around how to, how to stop it. If your discussions, if your peace talks are backed up by either the use or the threat of force, it concentrates minds mightily and things will happen. You know, would we have gotten as far as we have if we didn't have the gun in 1916 in the War of Independence? No, you know, and while you can say that the gunmen didn't achieve it, others achieved it, but they only achieved it because the gunmen were there. I'm not advocating going out or going back to the gun anywhere along this, um, but it has its place. You know, there are times when desperate measures need to be taken, and these were desperate times. Not resorting exclusively to violence, the Land League supported other measures. Englishman Captain Charles Cunningham Boycott, while not a landlord, is a notable victim of such measures. Leasing a thousand-acre farm on Loch Earn, he acted as an agent for local Mayo estates, effectively in charge of collecting rent from just under 40 tenants. The tenants wanted to pay lower rents and decided to begin with a more peaceful technique to try and bend the captain to their demands. One of social excommunication. Captain Boycott's labourers went on strike in 1880 demanding a raise. The tenants refused to pay any rent. A crowd from the town visited his estate, ordering his workmen and stablemen to never work for him again. His blacksmith was threatened with murder. A young postboy was struck and threatened as he delivered the captain's mail. Shopkeepers stopped supplying goods to his house. Telegraph messengers wouldn't approach him for fear of being assaulted. People walked over his crops and destroyed his gates, walls and stock. Captain Charles Boycott would eventually take leave of his estate and make for England a ruined man. The success of the people in driving their perceived enemy from his own land in such a fashion was celebrated and cheered nationwide, and very soon, worldwide, the term to boycott became popular. But landlordism was a key pillar of British rule, and intending to crush the Land League, the British cabinet agreed to implement a new policy of coercion in Ireland. Coercion would allow Britain to arrest and imprison people, particularly those involved in the violence related to agrarian conflict and the land war without trial. It was a policy supported from the very top by Queen Victoria. I grieve to state that the social condition of Ireland has assumed an alarming character. I have deemed it right to put in use the ordinary powers of the law but a demonstration of their insufficiency amply supplied by the present circumstance of the country leads me now to appraise you that proposals will be immediately submitted to you for entrusting me with the additional powers necessary in my judgment for the vindication of order and public law, but likewise to secure on behalf of my subjects protection for life, 
and property. On Thursday, the 13th of October, 1881, Prime Minister Gladstone announced a momentous arrest via the use of coercion. Charles Stuart Parnell had been arrested at Morrison's Hotel at the corner of Dawson and Nassau Street and was being transported to Kilmainham Jail amid a growing party of police. The Freeman's Journal would report that a great and powerful sensation thrilled the metropolis when the news spread. In Foster Place, there was a force of 100 policemen in readiness in case of any emergency. When the party reached the Bank of Ireland, Four or six Metropolitan Police jumped upon two outside cars and drove in front of the party. On reaching the quays at the foot of Parliament Street, a number of horse policemen joined the procession at the rear. In this order, the four vehicles made their way to Clemenum. At half past nine, Mr. Parnell appeared in front of the dark portals of Clemenum. Shortly after the arrest of Parnell came that of his colleague, MP John Dillon, at the Imperial Hotel on Sackville Street, modern-day O'Connell Street. Dillon's arrest would attract the attention of the public, who gathered outside the hotel under the watch of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the DMP, an organisation who were quick to pull weapons on the people. French biographer Frédéric Moir Boussy, in his 1910 book Irish Conspiracies, refers to the violent nature of the DMP, in the very first few paragraphs. In Dublin, the capital of the sister isle within eight hours of our metropolis, I have seen the police smash the heads of the people and kick women and girls on the sidewalk of the principal street. I have seen the soldier of an English regiment bayonet unarmed men and boys by the score. I saw the Royal Irish Constabulary a body under the control of the British cabinet, at Glynebeck assisted the atrocious ceremony of pouring petroleum on the thatched roofs of peasant homesteads and setting light to it, and at the use of the battering ram and the crowbar to demolish the walls of miserable hovels that where all the poor creatures had to put between their aged parents, their hungry children and the weather. Professor Donald McCracken wrote a book on the DMP. The Dublin Metropolitan Police Uh, had a very simple philosophy. They ruled by the boot and the baton. There there, there was no ambiguity about how they kept law and order on the streets. They also, remember, had a mounted division. And there's a wonderful description in, in Joyce's biography in which he describes a sabre charge in the center of, down Dame Street, where the mounted police uh, sabre charged an, an unarmed crowd. Now, um, they used the flats of the swords, not, not the sharp ends. So they didn't sort of cut people's heads off or things like that. But boy, Jove, if you're hit with a, with a steel blade, you, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll flatten you. They were tall. You had to be well over six foot. And then, of course, they had the helmets, which were, were as much a psychological thing to, to create even greater height than, 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 than they were themselves. So there were, there were farm lads that were recru- recruited from, farm, from the farms, and, and uh, they just were an intimidating force, uh, just by their physical entity. There just was this belief in officialdom that the only way you could hold Dublin was essentially by, by force. The DMP, their numbers small compared to the growing crowds, were on the receiving end of shouts of abuse. By the end of the day, this exchange of words will be replaced with stones and batons. Captain of the DMP, George Talbot, 
instructed that the men put away their batons and disperse the crowd without their use. Disobedience among the ranks was rampant. Many of his men hid their weapons up their sleeves so that a seemingly innocent bang with the forearm would become as momentous as the kick of a mule. It was a practice of police to exchange their coats before coming out, making their identification harder in the events of any inquiries. And with drawn batons, the police charged a portion of the crowd standing between the Imperial Hotel and Sackville Place. Without discriminating between the respectable and the disorderly, the people were attacked, the batons being used with much more effect on the heads and the faces and bodies of all so unfortunate as to meet the charge. Many fell from the blows they received, and others, among them a couple of women, were thrown down by the force of the onset. Their conduct was such as to appear almost incredible to all who did not happen to witness it. After every charge they made, men, among them respectable citizens, were left lying on the street with blood pouring from the wounds they had received on the head from the batons of the police. Others were covered with severe bruises from kicks and blows of clenched fists delivered with all the strength that powerful men could exert. The violence continued into the next day. Dublin was in a state of anarchy. In Kilmainham Jail, then on what was the outskirts of Dublin, Parnell would continue to try and solve the land crisis politically. Outside, a growing number would take matters into their own hands. The British made the mistake. They arrested the wrong people. They took the doves out of it, leaving the hawks out there. In Dublin, a secret group was formed, an assassination squad. They would go a step further than everybody else. Much of the detail on the creation of this group, given the inherent secrecy, came about only from their subsequent trial. And even then, information in some cases may have been twisted to fit the agenda of those reporting it. We'll attempt to highlight particular discrepancies and conflicts where we can, but just like the attitude needed towards modern media today, everything should be taken with a small pinch of salt. In late 1881, John Walsh, a steelworker by trade and a Land League organiser in Middlesbrough, arrived in Dublin. A tried and tested Fenian, a term applied to a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, Walsh was deep into the nationalist cause and had travelled to the corners of the globe in support of it. Now, sent to Dublin with money and a letter of introduction from the Secretary of the Land League of Great Britain, Frank Byrne, he sought out fellow Fenian and van driver, Edward McCaffrey. His goal was to form a new organisation, a society whose intent, in their words, was to make history. Early in the process, and by some accounts only after refusals from others, Walsh was taken by McCaffrey to Denzel Street, now aptly named Fenian Street, and the home of one James Carey. James Carey was a noted figure in Dublin in early 1881. While on the surface he was a building contractor and landlord, he was also on the fringes of extreme nationalism, a proud Catholic, civic-minded and embedded into Fenianism. Carey wanted to assist in the separation of Ireland from England. He joined the Fenian organisation in 1861 and around eight years later became treasurer as part of the Dublin Directory. In 1879 he ceased to be a member of the Fenian Brotherhood for apparent personal reasons. He had also been a member, if not the head of, a vigilance committee tasked with the elimination of informers, a scourge of underground societies. Walsh would receive a positive response from Kerry, 
who now sat on the would-be four-man directory of this organisation and was responsible for swearing in more members. Recruited around the same time as Carey was James Mullet, a publican on Lower Bridge Street who would, for the time anyway, be the chairman. Carey, Mullet and Ed McCaffrey were joined by Daniel Curley, a carpenter and reportedly a soon-to-be godfather of one of Carey's children. Curley was from Galway and by all accounts an extremely hard-working man. Living at Love Lane, Mount Street, with his wife Jane and their three children, he was temperate, religious and not inclined to drink much, if at all. Both Curley and Mullet were well-respected Fenians and completed Walsh's four-man committee. All members would swear an oath, along with the now well-known trope of a penknife to the hand. I, of my own free volition, do solemnly swear hereon and hereby that I will do my utmost to establish the national independence of Ireland and bear true allegiance to the organisation of the Irish Invincibles and implicitly obey my superior officers, that I will never unnecessarily divulge, either in part or whole, the secrets of this organisation to any living being under the canopy of heaven. Walsh returned to England and left the four men to continue with the task of recruiting more members to their Dublin branch. The assassination squad was dedicated to the violent overthrow of British rule in Ireland. Funds would be brought over to Kerry by Irish-American Captain John McCafferty and later by PJ Tynan, an Irishman living in London and a member of the Queen's Own Westminster Volunteers. Tynan had owned a bookshop in Dunleary allowing him to make seemingly legitimate business trips between both countries. Not needing to waste time collecting money and subscriptions from members, the group could completely focus on their first targets, Earl Cowper and Chief Secretary William Buckshot Forster, often referred to as Foster. The apparent ruler of this country, of course, was Foster, so he had to go. Um, in taking him out, theoretically, you would scare the British Parliament, at least looking to what was happening here. He was the prime representative of the British government in Ireland. I mean, you know, you can't get the king, you can't get the queen. Uh, so, you know, take out the one you can get, the first person, number one. Um, you know, you, you got to push back, but there's no point in pushing back at the local tax inspector. You know, he is only doing a job. And okay, you might decide to kill him, but that's like swatting a fly. You know, you've got to get right back to the dung heap where the flies are coming from. And that they would have seen as being the British Parliament. Uh, so you've got to go take out the nearest to that that you can. Forster was key to bringing coercion to Ireland. He earned the nickname Buckshot Forster for reportedly ordering the police to disperse unruly crowds with a blast of buckshot. His ultimate aim may have been to reduce fatalities by substituting out live ammunition, but nevertheless, the nickname would stick. He was a hate figure amongst Irish nationalists. Today, this is captured in a mocking verse in the traditional Irish tune about Dublin's former red light district, Monto. Forster was no stranger to threats on his life, but regularly shunned them, stubbornly insisting that it was not his fate to be murdered in Ireland and declining Inspector Mallon's suggestion 
that he carry a revolver on his person as protection. On a late 1881 tour through aggravated parts of the country, Forster, hoping to see the current state of the country firsthand, detested the need to be escorted by police, despite being deeply within enemy territory. They felt impervious. They felt that they could, that, yeah, they could do this. And again, it's important that you be able to do that. I mean, if you, as the chief secretary or the first secretary or whatever, if you have to go around with a, a ring of steel around you, then you're not ruling, you're not doing your job. They had to be able to uh, go, go out without this. And foolhardy as it might seem, it was part of the job to take that risk. It had to be. Anything else would say that the, the others were winning. Forster would survive the tour of the country, unscathed physically, though not mentally, by the state he founded in. While the assassination group aimed to fight him and British rule with weapons, Parnell continued to endeavour to use words. In May 1882, success came in the form of a major political agreement with Prime Minister Gladstone, known, however inaccurately, as the Kilmainham Treaty. Realising that coercion and the Land Act in its current form were doing nothing to curb the violence in the country, particularly outside Dublin, Gladstone was eager to find a new way to alleviate the problem, even if it meant going against Forster and his increasingly unpopular advocation for coercion. The Kilmainham Treaty, put simply, was a promise of land reform in return for a cessation of agitation. And I use the term so treaty in inverted commas because it obviously wasn't a treaty as you and I would understand it uh, or as we would understand it to today as between two sovereign powers. In return for the settlement of arrears owed by tenants to landlords, a huge problem encountered by the Land Act, Parnell would denounce intimidation and violence and the government would end the Coercion Act. While certainly not well received amongst the entire British establishment, news of the treaty between the British government and the leader of Irish nationalism was generally greeted favourably. Many on both sides dared to dream of a new chapter in British and Irish relations. However, an incident in Ballina, County Mayo, on the 5th of May 1882 showed how violence could still impact a delicate political situation. At about 9pm in Ballina, revellers were out in celebration of the release of prisoners arrested under coercion. The roads were lit with burning tar barrels. The local amateur band, consisting of young boys, marched and played down the streets to entertain their community. It wouldn't be long before they would encounter the local RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary. The instruments were seized, the police refusing to return them. The crowd would grow excited. Striking the police who charged several times with fixed swords, they returned down the main street and were pelted with stones. Police then fired several times, wounding a large number of persons. Several were injured, mostly children under the age of 16. Two members of the band were killed. These horrific actions by police on children would be reported on by the papers the next day, only to be quickly overshadowed when James Carey and the assassination squad finally drew blood. Parnell is quoted to have once said that the first thing you've got to do with an Englishman on the Irish question is to shock him. It was more than England 
that was about to be shocked. Against the backdrop of sweeping rural violence, a blow was to be struck at the very heart of the British establishment in Ireland. On the 6th of May, 1882, in Phoenix Park, James Carey, Daniel Curley and their recruits kicked off their own violent chapter in the story of Irish Republican resistance. Their brutal actions would cause Parnell to pale upon hearing the news. Prime Minister Gladstone would shed tears while addressing the House of Commons. A special police unit would be created to hunt the group down. Newspapers would print special Sunday editions for the first time ever to cover the story. Some papers would find a small black bordered card in their letterboxes, dropped there by Daniel Curley on behalf of the group as they claimed ownership of the events in Phoenix Park. The cards read, executed by order of the Irish Invincibles. In the next episode, the Invincibles make their move. The Invincibles Park Assassins is written and produced by Roisin Jones. Narration by Jason Coburn and Marianne O'Rourke. Music for the series is composed by John Kelleher. Our guest historians are Michal O'Dwivlin, Felix Larkin and Donal McCracken. Actors in this episode are Paul Butler-Lennox, MJ Sullivan, Julian Kalen, Karen Jones, Joe Rudden, Julianne Finan, Dylan Flynn, Denise Deegan, Ferdia McAngusa, Jared Shannon. Poetry is read by Irish poet Jessica Trainer. Artwork for the series is by Tonya King and can be viewed on Facebook and Instagram forward slash The Invincibles Podcast and Twitter forward slash Park Assassins. Follow us for special extras and future updates. Thanks to Stephen Ludlow for the long-term loan of audio equipment and to Conrad Jones for the use of his space in recording two of the interviews. Thanks to Fia Chris Sheehan and Baycourt Limited for permission to use Monto by the Dubliners. Special thanks to historian Jared Shannon, who initially helped kickstart this series. He passionately brought the story of the Invincibles to our attention in a Dublin pub one evening, leaving the project only to focus on his own studies. You can find his writings and details of future talks on his website, jaredshannon.com. Jared's late friend, Dr Shane Kenna, wrote a book on the Invincibles, sadly passing away before its release. His passion for the story passed to Jared and then on to us. This episode is dedicated to him. <laughs>